Today's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 14, verses 26 to 40. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only one or two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The women should keep silent in churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. For if if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things that I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. You may be seated. Thank you. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, we are grateful, as always, to enter into any text in your holy word. We thank you for this passage of scripture because we find in it your character. We find in it how we are to function as your people and how we might live lives that glorify you. And so I pray that you would help us as hearers of your word, uh, that we, Lord, would take it into our hearts, into our minds, and that it would produce fruit in the work of our hands, that you might be glorified in every area of our life. And we pray all of this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, in September of 2021, about a year and a half ago, we started teaching through the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, about a year and a half. There's lots of breaks and little things that we've taken stops and starts here and there. Uh, but now coming after a break through the season of Advent and into the new year, we're back into 1 Corinthians. So if you're brand new with us, welcome. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're finishing that off today. We've got 15 and 16 in front of us. I'll tell you, uh, if everything works according to our plan as it stands right now, we're going to finish this book uh, just a couple of weeks after Easter. And so that's kind of where we're moving. Um, I do want to say that when we preach through books of the Bible, we're doing so on purpose because we think that it's the best way for us as a congregation to get the whole counsel of God's word into us. And I say that to say, I wouldn't choose this text ever (laughs) if I was preaching in a topical way. This is why it's really important that you preach through books of the Bible. The whole Bible, and I I think God has something to say to us from this today, in this moment. I I think he does. But I, I wouldn't pick this text. I was saying to Miriam before she got to read, in a million years, this would, I wouldn't pick this text. If it was just topical preaching all the time, preaching about things I want to preach about, I'd preach the Gospels probably nonstop. Nothing controversial. I'd just preach Jesus all the time and be thought well of. So what are we looking at here today? Okay, don't worry, we're going to get to that last line that made you gasp. I'm, I'm, I'm going to explain it, but um, we've got some work to do before this. I, I, wanna, I do want to talk about the fullness of what this is saying. The text here is finishing off chapter 14, uh, which has been all about desiring the gifts of the Spirit that build up the church. 
Desiring the gifts of the Spirit that build up the church. It's all about others. There's an others-focused way to be part of the church that is modeled after the way that Jesus loved others. This text is about the way that we do things as a church when we gather together. Because the way that we do things communicates what we believe about God and how we believe he's called us to live. So it's all about God. There's a God-centered way to live as the church that displays his nature and character to one another, yes, but also to the watching world around us, those who may be looking in. Maybe some of you are the watching world around us. You know that you're not a follower of Jesus. You're trying to figure this out. You've come here today to gather with us because you have questions about who God is, and that's wonderful. There's people here every single week questioning who God is, and we welcome you. This text is about the way that we practically then order ourselves as we participate in the life of the church. And and there's lots of ways to order ourselves as we gather in a church setting like this. As we gather together as a congregation, there's lots of ways to do lots of right ways to do it. There's also wrong ways to do it. And that's what this text is getting at. There's some wrong ways they were doing things, and that's what Paul is writing to them about here. It's about our gatherings. So what are we saying about the gospel of Jesus and the way that we practically function together as a gathered church? That's what we're going to look at today. We're going to talk about others, God, and the gatherings. Others, God, and gatherings. It's all about others. It's all about God. It's all about the way we gather together. So what do I mean when I say it's all about others? Okay, look look at the text again, verse 26. It says, What then, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Okay, he says, let all things be done for building up. That's echoing back to something he said earlier in chapter 14, which we looked at in November, when he's talking about the gifts of the Spirit, and he's saying the way that each gift of the Spirit needs to be exercised is for the building up or encouragement or strengthening of one another as the church. Building up the church means strengthening the church. So he's saying, if you have a hymn or a song or a psalm, make sure it's for building up the church. If you've got a lesson or a teaching of some kind, make sure it's for building up the church. He's saying if you've got a tongue or an interpretation, make sure it's for building up the church. If you've got a revelation of some kind, make sure it's for building up the church. And we we look at that, we go, "That, that all sounds fine. It's all for building up the church. Like, what's the alternative? And you go, oh, well, if you're asking what the alternative might be, that means you've maybe forgotten the book that we're in. The congregation he's writing to in the first century. All the way back in in September of 2021, when I said we began looking at 1 Corinthians, I was trying to help us to get our minds around the context of ancient Corinth. What kind of community was that? What kind of church was that? What were the prevailing ideologies and ideas that were shaping culture in those moments? And I shared a quote from a couple of scholars. It says, Corinth was prosperous, cosmopolitan, and religiously pluralistic. Accustomed to visits by impressive traveling speakers and obsessed with status, self-promotion, and personal rights. It says they were obsessed with status, self-promotion, and personal rights. Okay, This is the refrain of the church in Corinth. Well, this is the refrain of the community of Corinth, and I believe the church is being transformed by the gospel, but they're still there. Okay? Me, 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 me. Me, 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 me. This is about me. And if you live in a culture that says it's all about you, then you go, hey, everybody says me, me, me. That means I bring my me, me, me to the church. (laughs) And that's what they were doing. Build me, look at me, elevate me, promote me, see my gifts, hear my voice, prefer me. And into that whole hot mess, Paul speaks. And he says, let all things be done for building up. That's the point. 
which means care about others in the church, not only your own interests. You can't only care about yourself if you're a follower of Jesus. He's been talking about building up the church since all the way back in chapter 3, which I'm going to read for you because it was a very long time ago. In verse 10, it says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building upon it. Let each take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. All things done by all people in the church need to have the aim of building up others. Let all things be done for building up. But don't forget that the building work we do, that we're called to, that you're called to, not just me, but you, the building work you are called to do is all built on the one singular, immovable foundation of Jesus. It's all about others, yes. There's an others-focused way to be part of the church that is modeled after the way Jesus loved others. He is the foundation. Let me show you Philippians chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The building up, of the church, it's the building up of others, that's the goal. And how do you do that? How do you live an others-focused life in a me-focused world? What motivates that kind of life? Keep reading in Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How are you motivated to live an others-focused life in a me-focused world? It's right here. Okay? Christianity is not complicated. It's simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. When we follow Jesus, we know that he obediently humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. But we also know that he did that for our good, for our salvation, and for our eternal life. We know that he was raised from the dead in new life so that we too could have new life and declare what we believe in what we say and how we live. We can say that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's true for us. And then, when we know that, we also know the pathway for us. We, as followers of Jesus, as we follow him, it means we are to obediently humble ourselves to also seek the good of others. Just look at verses 3 and 4 again of Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, Very practically speaking, what does that have to do with the text we're looking at today? Look back at verse 26. 
What then, brothers, when you come together, let, uh, it says each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Okay. If the church in Corinth was obsessed with status and self-promotion and personal rights, and I think they were, and historically that seems to be grounded with everything we've seen in the rest of 1 Corinthians prior to this, it seems to be true. He's correcting a lot of things in the life of their community, which is why it's a good letter for us to study as Christ City. Because he's correcting a lot of things in our community. If it's true that they were truly obsessed with this, that they were promoting themselves, that they were exercising a self-centered way of being, one of the ways that they would have done that, to increase their status, promote themselves, and get theirs, was to exercise their spiritual gifts in the context of the gathered church. They would have been doing something with the gifts of the Spirit that would have been very self-promoting, would have been very self-centered. They were using the gathering of the church to flex their spiritual muscles and their spiritual gifts for the sake of their own advancement, not simply to serve others and glorify God. They were at times, I would say in general, they were obviously more interested in using their spiritual gifts for their self-expression than they were for building up others. And this church in Corinth were at times, in particular, interested in using prophecy and tongues to gain a spiritual status. That's why we've had like an entire chapter dedicated to how you wrestle through this that followed two previous chapters that explained what the gifts are and how you can start to enter into using them. There was a bit of a mess going on, and that mess was the occasion for this letter to be written. The conduct of the church in Corinth is what got us the letter of 1 Corinthians. They were using prophecy in tongues in particular to gain a spiritual status because they lived in a society that valued status climbing. Okay, for us though, we need to know it's all about others because it's all about Jesus. And that's how we build each other up. Others, secondly, God. This text is about the way we do things as a church when we gather. It's true. It's not just for our own good, but because of the way we do things, because of the, the way that we do things communicates what we believe about God. And if this text is all about God, and I'm arguing it is, there's a God-centered way to live as the church. And that displays his nature and character to one another, but also to all who may look in on us. Earlier in 1 Corinthians, uh, this is what Sam preached the Sunday before Advent started. So this is like back in November. Sam preached this text, verse 23. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and all outsiders, or sorry, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? Yes, they will. I just, I can give you, the, the, it's a rhetorical question. Yes, they will. Verse 24, it's good. I was starting to wonder if you were still with me. Okay. We're reading. Verse 24. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all and he's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Okay. My whole point is that the way we do things as Christians, the way that we live 24-7, not just as we gather together in kind of a, a you know, 75-minute time on Sunday mornings, the 24-7 the life we live, every aspect of our life, and in the way that we gather together, whether it's here in a prayer, you know, on a Sunday gathering, whether it's one of the weekly prayer meetings that we have, whether it's one of the daily prayer meetings we have this coming week, whether it's in your community group, wherever it is that you gather together with other Christians, 
whatever we're doing and whoever we're doing it with, our conduct says something about what we believe about God. So when we handle ourselves with integrity in the workplace, when we handle ourselves with integrity within our family units, it says something about what we believe about God and about who God is. When we sin against others, which we do, and then we recognize that sin and ask for their forgiveness, it says something about what we believe about God and about who he is. When we gather together as the church, the way we handle ourselves, the way we act, the way we use the gifts of the Spirit, all of that says something about what we believe about God and about who God is. And in many ways, I think this little verse that I'm going to read in a second is the center of the whole text. I think it's the center of the text we're looking at today. Verse 33 says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And that short little verse carries a lot of weight. Because of the self-centeredness of the people in Corinth, their gatherings had some chaos in them. They were obsessed with status, self-promotion, and personal rights. Me, 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 me. Notice me. Look at me. Honor me. And when everyone is looking out for number one, it creates confusion. And that confusion was seen in their gatherings when everyone was trying to speak up in a way that was not serving the whole community. Okay? It wasn't building up the church. What you had was confusion on a corporate scale. Confusion is the word in the text. might not be strong enough to really capture the full essence of what's going on. This isn't the kind of confusion, you know, when you, you go to, a, over the holidays, we went to a new city and I went, into the downtown core, and I started getting lost, and I was confused about which direction I should be going. You're like, yeah, that's confusion. That's day-to-day -day confusion. This is a little different than that. This isn't just confusion about, you know, not knowing which direction to turn. This is more like the anarchy that comes from opposing authority and creating disorder and unruliness. It's a, it's a pretty pronounced kind of confusion. And I could say in this text, God is not a God of anarchy, but of peace. And what happens is when we're living in selfishness that creates anarchy, we're saying something about God and about who we consider ourselves to be. We're saying something. We see something similar being explained in the book of James. James chapter 3, verse 13 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts... Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where there is jealousy, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Okay, that disorder is the same word for our confusion. Okay? Jealousy, selfish ambition, and the self-centered need to be heard whenever you need to express yourself, that all creates the kind of corporate anarchy that I think Paul is trying to correct. But, but this is talking about when, when God is actually at the center and our conduct is in line with his nature and character, we experience peace. God is not a God of anarchy, but of peace. Just look at the contrast here when you read the next verse that comes in James chapter 3. Just putting God back at the center of it all. Verse 16, where jealousy and selfish ambition ex exist, there will be disorder 
in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Okay. It's about others, it's about God, and it's about our gatherings. It's about others, it's about God, and it's about our gatherings. This text is about the way we live Christ-centered, others-focused lives as the church. This text is about the way we do things as a Christian because of who God is, who he's revealed himself to be. He is a God of peace, not chaos. But this text is especially about the way an others-focused, God-centered church seeks to gather together. Giving some instruction on how that works. This text is about the way we practically order ourselves as we participate in the life of the church. There are lots of ways to order a gathering in a church. I don't know if you've ever visited another church, but sometimes people do it different than us. I like how we do it. They may like how they do it. Do you know that the three Christ City churches in Vancouver don't do it exactly the same? Do you know that that kind of annoys me? One of those churches, I'm just going to say, hey, they, they, we, we planted both of them. One of those churches doesn't sing the doxology at the end of their gatherings. I'm just saying. That's chaos and disorder in my mind. I preached there in December and had to sing by myself on the drive home because our gathering is not finished until we've sung the doxology. Okay. Do you know the story? I don't have time for this, but I'm going to tell you anyways. Do you know the story of how we ended up singing the doxology at the end of every gathering? It's amazing. First Sunday, launch Sunday. We're meeting in here. It's September 22nd, 2013. And I wanted to sing the doxology at the end of the gathering. So we did because it was our first Sunday and it was awesome. And then the next Sunday, the worship leader said, let's do that again. I said, cool. And then the third Sunday, we just weren't going to. So I came up here. I stepped up to close the gathering in prayer. And I said, have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday. And I went like this, and I walked back that way, and someone shouted out, what about the doxology? <laughs> and I turned around and looked at the worship leader, and he was like, <laughs> and he just sang it. And we've sung it every Sunday since. Okay. It's nothing to do with anything. That's, also, let me say, that's probably the most chaotic experience we've ever had at Christ City Church. <laughs> See, some of why this text is sort of, uh, you're like, this text is redundant. We are not that crazy church. We're not. We're not. It's true. It's true. It's still, it's still a text in the Bible, and we're working through 1 Corinthians, and we're going to look at it. But there, there's lots here for us. There's lots here for us. This text is about our gatherings. And when we look at the whole text, we see three groups of people here who are told to be silent. Three groups. This is the, the part of the text that you've been waiting for. Okay, verse 27. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three, uh, two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. And we've talked about this before. Uh, if someone gets up and says they have a tongue, there needs to be an interpretation of that tongue. Otherwise, it's unintelligible and no one will be built up by it. So if somebody comes to me this morning, and they walk up to me and they go, I believe I have a tongue for the church. And I go, well, bust that out on me right now. Let's hear it. And they do it. And I go, all right, let's, let's see how this goes. And they come up here and they deliver a tongue, which is just something in a different language, a heavenly language or a language that God has given them in the moment to express something to the congregation. 
if there is no interpretation, we would just say, hey, that was out of order. We're not exactly sure, but um, you know, we're not going to worry about that. There was no interpretation. So um, anyways, we'll move on. That, that's simply all it is. That happens in community groups. That happens in prayer meetings. That happens sometimes on a Sunday, um, you know, if you're not terrified to stand up and deliver a tongue needs to be interpreted or it's not intelligible. And if it's not intelligible, it does not build up. Everything has to be done to build up. You're with me. Everything has to be done to build up. Verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made by another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Hey, we've talked about this before as well. If you've got a prophetic word, just relax. Two or three are going to be delivered. It's fine. At the end of the day, there's only one Holy Spirit. And just so you know, he could speak through other people to your church, to you as a group, in your community group, in a prayer meeting. doesn't need to be you. And that's what he's saying. Just be be patient. The spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. That means don't, don't play the card where you're kind of doing this. And, and you may have seen this in the sort of uh, charismatic world. You can see this sometimes, and I think it's out of order, where people say, like, I have to. And they're sort of frothing at the mouth in an ecstatic kind of way. This text actually helps us to know that's not authentic. The spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. Just wait your turn. It's fine. It's not sort of an ecstatic thing where you are having this, uh, you know, disconnected experience where you're not thinking about what's going on because you've got a prophetic word for the church and you're frothing around. It, it, that's not it. It's not of God. There is a godly way and an, a way that is of God to deliver a prophetic word. It's just this very clearly and very helpfully. You also need to give time for that prophetic word to be judged or weighed. Because not every prophetic word delivered in a church is true or accurate. Um, there's more than one right way to do this, um, but it will include some of what I'm going to show you. Michael Green outlines this uh, for weighing a prophetic word. He's, just, he's got seven points. I'm just going to read them to you. I'm not going to expand on them much. If somebody comes and delivers a prophetic word, we need to weigh the truth of that together as a community. There needs to be a conversation that goes around, is this true or not? Just because somebody says, Thus saith the Lord, which is probably not the way you should enter into a prophecy anyways. But just because someone says that doesn't mean it's true. Right? Okay, now let's have a look at these seven things. I just want you to know this. One, does it glorify God rather than the speaker, church, or denomination? Two, does it accord with scripture? Does it agree with scripture? Three, does it build up the church? This is what we're talking about in this text. Four, is it spoken in love? Five, does the speaker submit him or herself to the judgment and consensus of others in spiritual humility? That's a very good one. If you've hung around folks who love to deliver prophetic words, um, this is a very important sign that they are in submission not only to the word, but also to the community of God's people who are judging it. Six, is the speaker in control of him or herself? And this is what I'm talking about in the sense of not ecstatic, but under control. And seven, is there a reasonable amount of instruction or does the message seem excessive in detail? Which I just like. Okay, if someone says they have a word, let them speak and you be silent because otherwise you're forcing your way into a position of being heard and that might cause confusion in the gathering and we are not about that anarchy. God is a God, not of confusion, but of peace. 
There is a sense, I think, that Paul is giving specific instructions to this church on tongues and prophecy because it was tongues and prophecy that they had been abusing. So I think you could have instruction on a church that has uh, an abusive way of talking about healing. You go to the gifts of the Spirit that are listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and I think you make that whole list out, and you can take that list, and you could probably find areas where those have been abused before, and if Paul was writing to a different church that we were abusing different gifts, I'm sure he would have corrected them in that manner. But this is an example for us of how he corrected a church that we're abusing these two in particular. Okay, keep going. Look at the text. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. (laughs) Okay, this is where you can express your collective, huh? (laughs) This this is good. It's an important text. It's important that we read it well. Back in 1 Corinthians 11, which we looked at in the spring, Paul does not just permit a woman to pray or prophesy, but seems to expect it. So I don't think he means silent in the sense that women, as they enter the door here, should all put a piece of duct tape over their mouth just in case they might express a word. Okay, You need to know, again, you're not part of a chaotic church, so sometimes this might not hit you. You're also not part of a church that has a complete silent policy for women. Those churches exist. Okay? I think they're fewer and far between than they used to be. But they're out there. There are people who read that in, in, in that manner. It's not what it's saying. In fact, when he says the people speaking in tongues should be silent, and the people who are prophesying should be silent, he doesn't mean like silent, silent. He means be quiet when someone else is speaking. That's the way that the word is used in other places and other contexts, and I think it's faithful to look at it in that way. I think that is what is being prohibited here. There's definitely something being prohibited here. Don't get me wrong. There's something where they're saying, don't do this. But what is it? That's the question we have to answer. Now, there are several faithful different views of how to look at this text, and I want to respect the people that I disagree with, but I'm just going to tell you what I think it means. And respectfully to those I disagree with, we could have a a wonderful conversation. But look at the text again, verse 34. The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. Now, I think the translation of the Bible that we use, which is called the English Standard Version, we use it on Sundays, I think it's a wonderful translation, the ESV. The wonderful team of translators who are uh, renowned scholars who are translating the original Greek manuscripts into the English that we have in the modern world. They've done a wonderful job, and I don't like highlighting things where I disagree with it as though I'm some authority on this, but I do want to highlight something that I disagree with when I think there is disagreement allowed. I think there's a better way to translate one word here in the text, and I think it makes sense of the text better, and I want to show you. Where it says the women should keep silent in the churches, I think it makes more sense in the context of the whole passage and in light of the whole of 1 Corinthians and in light of the whole Bible, uh, especially where it, says, uh, where it says they can ask their husbands at home. I think it makes more sense to translate that not as women, but as wives, which is what that word means. It could be translated women or wives. 
So it could be read, this is how the text could be read, listen. The wives should keep silent in the churches. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their own man or their husband at home. To me, that makes more sense of the text. It's not women in general, it's some particular wives. Okay, why does it single out a particular group of Corinthian wives who need to be quiet and be in submission and they just need to take their questions and ask them at home when they get home? Why is that happening? Well, for the same reason that some men and women were told to be silent when they're speaking in tongues and there's no interpretation. Two or three in tongues and and then if there's no interpretation, then... It's the same reason that some are being told, some men and some women are being told not to prophesy in a continued way. They were bringing some chaos into the gathering in the way that they were participating in it. In that same way as you could bring chaos in tongues and chaos in a prophecy, there was chaos or a disorderly way, they were told to be silent because they were causing confusion. Here's what they were doing. Whether it was someone teaching or someone singing or someone interpreting a tongue, which is a revelation that is unintelligible unless it's interpreted, or someone who is prophesying, or during the time when someone is weighing a prophecy. Doesn't much matter. The point is, these women were being a bit unruly and they were getting up and asking questions in the middle of that whole scene And it was causing confusion in the gathering. And there is a shamefulness that comes when somebody continually speaks up in an inappropriate way at inappropriate times and interrupts a corporate gathering. As one of my scholar friends this week said to me, this Miriam, some of you would know Miriam, she's part of the congregation. She said, the shamefulness is that they are overriding others and really overriding the spirit. And again, in light of earlier in the chapter, it brings cultural shame if that's how women act in the church and someone were to look in. So if we're all speaking in tongues right now, just shouting it out, and somebody walks in, this is, this is what happens. They walk in the door and they go, whew, and they walk right back out the door. Okay, if, if there's people standing up all over here right now, someone in the back corner goes, I've got a prophetic word. And just boom, you're going to shout that out. In the middle of that, someone else goes, I have a prophetic word. And they start shouting it out. And you're like, oh, okay. And then someone else starts shouting out. And you're like, eesh, this is a lot going on. And someone walks in. They're going to walk in and go, this whole thing's chaos. I'm out. Okay. If, let's say there was a prophetic word delivered. And let's say there's a group of people who are discerning the truth of that prophetic word. They're weighing that prophetic word. And in the midst of that, There's two or three of the ladies in the back. Maybe their husbands are weighing the prophetic word and they're shouting from the back going, what do you really think it was about? (laughs) Like, I'm just trying to figure it out, babe. Just Again, you walk in, in that environment, you're like, what is this? I don't know. Have any of you ever been to a chaotic church? Like I've preached in them. I've guest preached in them and I've stood there and thought, what have I got myself into? Because it's a bit awkward. I think that's what's going on here. And you've got to remember that due to no fault of their own, most first century women were not educated. And so the church may have been the first place in their life that they experienced some measure of equality. And they're exercising that equality in a disruptive way. And Paul is saying, look, be silent when others are speaking. Don't interrupt with questions. Just ask your husband when you get home. You don't have to shout across the room to him right now. Just ask him when, he gets, when both of you are home. 
So BJ Earl Pisa wrote a commentary on this. I think this is a helpful line and a helpful summation of what I'm trying to get at. He says, Paul is forbidding wives from uninspired talking when others are inspired to speak. He's forbidding wives from uninspired talking when others are inspired to speak. So the out-of-order tongue speaker can be silent. The out-of-order prophet can be silent. The out-of-order woman who's interrupting the gathering can be silent. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Why is Paul talking about tongues and prophecy and unruly ladies? Because that was the problem in Corinth. I'm sure if he rocked up here, he would have other things to say to us that would be very corrective. If I knew what they were, I would correct them. Every context has something going on. Look at verse 39. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. The ordered thing, this this order that's called for here in the text is a personal self-control on a corporate scale. What were they experiencing in Corinth prior to this? Personal chaos on a corporate scale. Self-centered you know, desires, selfish desires that were being brought to bear on the church, chaotic environment, and it was a problem. This order now becomes self-control that you then bring and exercise in a corporate manner. Don't forget self-control is evidence of the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit at work in you. So yes, like I said back in verse 1 of this chapter, very, very, we, we looked at it months ago, but Paul says we are to earnestly desire to prophesy. Says that in verse 1, he says that in verse 40, or 39. And yes, like he said all the way through this, do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a way that aligns with the character of God and the truth of the gospel. And I will say, some churches need to hear, get some order in your chaos. And I would say, some churches could use a little more chaos. Not chaos in a negative way, but we could use a little interruption of the Holy Spirit, could we not? We've got Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, prayer meetings. We have weekly community groups starting the week after. And at times, that will break in here on a Sunday. And I'd love to see more of it. I would love it. Now, I know that that's a dangerous prayer for a pastor to pray. Would you mess our church up a little? Because the Holy Spirit will. But why? For the building up. So that we can be stronger followers of Jesus in the day and age that we live. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So when his people gather, it shouldn't be confusing, but peaceful. Jesus modeled a life of others-focused humility when he gave himself for us so that we might be saved. So when God's people gather, they should do so to build up and consider the interests of others, not just their own status or self-expression. And when God's people gather with Christ at the center, we should expect and experience the gifts of the Spirit in a way that build the church up. Amen? Would you stand with me as we respond?